You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning and welcome to City Church. As uh, Sarah said on the video, my name is Alex Scott. I have the opportunity to serve here as the executive pastor, and I'm excited to spend some time together uh, this morning as a church as we have the opportunity to study God's Word. And uh, we have been uh, continuing through our series in the book of the, uh, the New Testament letter, uh, 1 Corinthians. And so if you have your Bible with you, I just would encourage you to open that up to 1 Corinthians 11. This morning we'll be starting in uh, verse 7. If you are here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we'd love the opportunity to give you one. You can stop by the Connect desk uh, on your way out this morning. We've got Bibles there. We'd love uh, to give you one. And the verses will also be on the screens as we work through them this morning so you can follow along there. As you turn there, last week, uh, Dean mentioned Lance Beecham, who's our discipleship pastor, walked us through uh, the first half of chapter 11. And if you missed it, I want to encourage you, Lance did a great job uh, allowing us to think helpfully about this passage. I'd encourage you to go to the podcast or to the website and uh, watch the video. But in that sermon, one of the things, and in this section of 1 Corinthians, one of the things that we see is that Paul is addressing the Corinthians' gathered worship and the order that, that they need to have in their public gathered worship. And Lance uh, last week talked that uh, it, it, Paul is addressing in the beginning of chapter 11 what to wear in public worship and how it should reflect proper authority and reverence through gender distinction and modesty. And as we continue our passage this morning, we see Paul give instructions to the Corinthian church on the Lord's Supper and how this was actually dividing the church as they came together. So as we uh, follow along, the words will be on, or as we read, you can follow along as the words will be on the screen. We'll be starting in verse 17. Paul writes, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever, recogn- for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If you were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. 
If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to gather together this morning. And Father, unlike the Corinthian church, we pray that as we gather, gather under the teaching of your word that we would be united. Father, that we would see the glorious grace of the gospel. And Lord, that we would live our lives in reverence of that good news. And Father, also as a body together, as one group of believers on mission. So Father, we pray that your word to us would be clear this morning, that we would love you more, and that you would unite our church. It's all this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So as we think about this passage, I want you to think about your favorite meal, or maybe what comes to mind when you think about the best meal that you've ever eaten. And I've gotta admit, when I was doing this thought exercise and I was thinking through some different meals that I love, I'm afraid to admit that the filet of fish sandwich from McDonald's was like a little too high on my list. Um, It wasn't the top, okay, like I'm not that bad, but it definitely wasn't at the bottom. But as you're thinking about it, maybe there are a few things that come to mind, like a nice steak or some Kansas City barbecue. If you're a vegan, maybe you thought about a salad and like we're all silently judging you even though we don't know that's what you thought because like we all know there's no such thing as good tofu. Um, But for all of us, at the end of this time together, I hope that when we get done studying this text that we would see that the Lord's Supper is the greatest meal we could ever eat. And I know what you're probably thinking, if you picked up one of those packets on your way in, you're looking at this little bland wafer and a thimble full of juice, and you're like, there's no way this is the greatest meal I could eat. Just encourage you to bear with me for a few minutes, and that we might change our mind. And here's why. This is the main kind of point from this passage. The Lord's Supper satisfies our greatest hunger. And the Lord's Supper satisfies our greatest hunger. There's something wonderful about a medium rare steak or some Chick-fil-A nuggets and some Polynesian sauce, right? They satisfy our hunger for a short time physically. But there's something special about that wafer and the juice and what they symbolize that God has designed to sustain us in the Christian life. To sustain us in a way that regular food never can. To satisfy our deepest spiritual hunger. So there's a few things as we uh, look at this passage that I think we'll see, and the first is this. There is a wrong way to take the Lord's Supper. Paul tells the Corinthians that they are, what they are doing as they take this meal is the wrong way to do it. Look again at verses 17 and 18. Paul writes, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, since when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So every week on Sundays, when we gather together to sing, to hear God's word preached, to pray together, to take the Lord's Supper, Paul's assumption is that we should be better when we come together than we were before we came together. However, Paul says to the Corinthians, after you gather, you're worse. Coming together is dividing your church. What is meant to unite you and encourage you is dividing you because of how you are worshiping together and ultimately how you're approaching the Lord's Supper. 
I don't know about you, but I don't often stop to think about the fact that I can show up here, that we can show up here individually, and we can leave worse than when we got here. But if we think about this, this book and this letter, Paul has addressed divisions in the Corinthian church kind of throughout the letter. If we remember back to the very first chapter of this book, Paul gives the Corinthians a brief introduction in this letter, and then he urges them to have no divisions among themselves. He says to unite around the gospel, reminding them that, that Christ is not divided. If we remember back, there were people who were saying, I claim Paul and I claim Apollos, and Paul's like, no, no, claim Christ. He is what we should unite around. And Paul, throughout this entire letter, and specifically in this section, wants there to be selfless devotion to gospel unity when the church gathers together. We should think more highly of ourselves than others as we gather. It enforces what Zach talked about a few weeks ago. And all of that is especially true when we come to the table of the Lord to take the Lord's Supper. As we continue through this, we see exactly how they were dividing over the Lord's Supper. In verse 20, Paul writes, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. So whatever they were coming together to do, it wasn't to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? And Paul says, what should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. So to get some context, everyone would come together for a meal when the church would gather. And they're calling this meal the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, like, whatever this is, it's not the Lord's Supper. It might be a meal, it might be a party, it might be the church coming together, but it's not the Lord's Supper. He straight up tells them, you're missing the mark. And so as they would gather, they would all bring their own food. But this wasn't like you know, your old-fashioned church potluck or your friend's giving where like, you're like, okay, who all's here? All right, Miss Betty's here. Her deviled eggs are the best. Oh, Mr. Jones, I've got to make sure I get some of his ribs. Oh, Miss Jeannie, I need her cherry pie. You know, This isn't a meal where everybody comes together to share the food that they brought with one another. In Corinth, no, everyone's bringing their own food for themselves. And Paul is telling us that there's no communal aspect of this meal. The rich bring large meals, good drinks, and they live it up. And then he contrasts that with those who have nothing, who may not have brought any food or any drink. And when they show up, the rich don't share their food with the poor. And oftentimes, because of their schedules or whatever, the poor would come to this meal late. And the rich are there with full bellies, and the text says drunk from their overindulgence. This is humiliating to those in the church who have less. And it's dividing the church as they split into different factions. They were to come together to unite around the gospel, to be reminded that they were one body. But in this moment, Paul admonishes them and he says, do you despise the church of God? Do you despise the people that you gather with? The Lord's Supper was to be this communal meal that was shared with others to increase gospel unity in the church. And while nobody is likely to get drunk or overindulge on the wafers or the juice that we have, do we consider that this is a meal that is to unite us together as the church? Paul goes on, he says, don't you have homes in which to eat? Right, the rich and the poor, all of us aren't to come to this meal looking for a feast. We aren't to come to the table for the purpose of food. 
We're to come to the table to remember the purposes of Christ. And he doesn't praise them for the way that they come together, creating division amongst themselves because he can't. He says, this is not the way to take the Lord's Supper. And then through the rest of the passage, we see our second point, that we need to remember what the Lord's Supper is. Right, so clearly Paul has said, whatever you're doing, this is not the Lord's Supper. But through the rest of this passage, Paul gives us some helpful ideas of what the Lord's Supper is meant to be. Clearly the Corinthians had forgotten. And so there's gonna be a couple points on the screen uh, for what the Lord's Supper is, and then we're just gonna work through them quickly. But the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal for those who are following Christ. It's taken often with the gathered church. It's a symbolic meal that reflects our salvation, and it's a symbolic meal for the purpose of remembering proclaiming, reflecting, and uniting. Okay, we're gonna work through each of those quickly and they'll be on the screen again if you're taking notes. So the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal for those who are following Christ. So we think about this, it's who it is for. And as we see the Lord's Supper instituted by Jesus in the Gospels, these books of the Bible that tell us about the life and ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, every time there's an account of the Lord's Supper in those books, the context of the meal is with those who are followers of Jesus. In verse 23, where Paul said, on the night that he was betrayed, talking about when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, it was with the apostles, with those who were following Jesus. And in this letter, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, to a group of believers who are following Jesus, even if they don't get everything right all the time. So we see that the Lord's Supper is meant to be a meal for those of us who are followers of Christ. And we'll see in a few minutes, it's important for us to ask ourselves before we take the meal if we're currently following Christ. And if you're here this morning and you're you know, you, you aren't a believer, you're, you're kind of just checking out Christianity. If I'm being honest, I'm not sure how much sense it makes for you to take this meal. And don't hear this as we're, we don't want you here. We're so glad that you're here and we're, that you're checking out what it means to follow Jesus and to trust in him for salvation. And our prayer is that you would. And it probably doesn't feel very welcoming for me to say, hey, we're so glad you're here, but, but don't eat this meal with us. And you might be looking at that packet and think, I'm not missing out on much. But as we talk a little bit more about what this meal symbolizes, what it means, what it means for our salvation, my prayer is that you would see how much you're actually missing out on. I pray that when we take the Lord's Supper that you would see the love of the God of the universe who created you and loved you and me enough to send his son to live a life that we couldn't live, to die a death in our place that we deserved and to be to defeat sin once and for all when he rose from the grave. And that through that, you might trust in him today. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal for those of us who are following Christ. Second point, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal taken often with the gathered church. When do we take the Lord's Supper? Paul says often. There's no biblical prescription on how frequently we are to do it, but in verse 26, Paul writes, for as often, right? Does that mean weekly, monthly, every time there's a fifth Sunday? It's a decision for the local church. And as a church, we've had seasons where we've kind of done all of those rhythms. There's not one clear prescription, but we know we are to do it often. 
And in this, as Paul's writing to the local church, he repeatedly says, when you come together. The Lord's Supper is to be a meal for the gathered church. It's not intended to be a thing that we do individually or when we're scattered across the city, but as a practice of the church when we come together. It's because of that that we didn't take the Lord's Supper when we were uh, online only during COVID. It's meant to be enjoyed when the church comes together to unite us around the gospel. And sometimes we don't think about this communal aspect of the Lord's Supper. We take the bread and we take the juice and we assume that it's this moment just between us and God. But this meal is shared amongst all of us who partake in it. It's why we drink and eat together as one body. It's why the Corinthians were to share the food that they brought together. It was meant to unite us as the gathered church. Next, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal that reflects our salvation. Okay? Another way to think about this is what does the Lord's Supper actually mean? And I want to take a second to address the main point of this sermon. I said earlier that the Lord's Supper satisfies our greatest hunger. And I want to be careful to be clear about what that means specifically. There's been a historical view held by some around the Lord's Supper in the church, including the Catholic Church, that when we take this meal, there's a change in substance from a piece of bread and a cup of juice to something that we eat that results in our salvation. And this is the view known as transubstantiation. Okay, if you figure out how to make that onto a Scrabble board, I'm pretty sure you'll win. Um, but this view, right, transubstantiation, it teaches that the bread and the wine become the actual body and blood of Christ in such a way that when we take them, when we receive these elements, that we are receiving Christ. And not only are we receiving Christ, but we are receiving some means of grace in our salvation. There's this change of substance from bread and juice to body and blood that results in our salvation. And I think it's really important to say emphatically that this is not what the Bible teaches. And this matters a ton because how we understand this helps us to understand the biblical view of the gospel and of salvation. If when we eat the Lord's Supper, we are in some way receiving grace, we make the Lord's Supper necessary for salvation. And as we understand the gospel, we know that we are not saved from our sin by anything that we do. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a biblical understanding of this meal is one that is symbolic and that reflects our salvation. Look at verses 23 through 25. Paul writes, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus is saying that this bread and this juice, they, they, they represent his body and his blood, which he's about to give up on the cross. They symbolize him paying the penalty for our sin. This meal, it satisfies our greatest hunger because it represents our greatest need being met. It reminds us of the cost that was paid for our sins and it points us to the reality that by placing faith in Christ, we're reconciled to God. We see this in Romans 5, Paul writes, but God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How much more then, since we have now been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath? Right, this is what this meal represents. Our spiritual hunger is satisfied, trusting in Christ because he died for us. And this meal, it satisfies us, not by saving us, 
but by symbolically reflecting Christ's love for us. Lastly, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal for the purpose of remembering, reflecting, proclaiming, and uniting. Okay, we're gonna look at those quickly. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are to remember. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus says that we take this meal in remembrance of him. We remember all that we just talked about, that Christ was the sacrifice for our sin once and for all by going to the cross. We remember that he gave his body and he shed his blood to save us from our sin. When we take the bread, we remember that Jesus was incarnate. It was, he was God made flesh. God became man, that he suffered in that flesh and that he died in that flesh on the cross for us. When we take the juice, we remember that Jesus shed his blood to purchase us. We remember that the new covenant has been established. We're no longer under the old covenant like Israel where each year we have to take animals unblemished to the, to the temple and have them sacrificed to defer our, the penalty of our sin until we wake up the next day and the next month and the next year and have to do it over and over again. We have one sacrifice in, in Christ's shed blood that pays for them all. And we need to remember because if you're like me, we're prone to forgetting. We forget how much we're loved. We forget what our salvation cost. We forget who God is and what he's done for us, and we need to remember. Second, when we take the Lord's Supper, we reflect. If you look at verse 28, and we're gonna talk about this a little bit more, Paul tells the Corinthians to examine themselves before the supper. Paul's urging us to reflect, to take a moment and pause and reflect on our sin. He's telling us to reflect on the graciousness of God who forgives that sin. And if we're honest, oftentimes when we take the Lord's Supper and we have this moment for reflection, I think about this and it's kind of a downer, right? We can look at God's standards and we can see all of the ways that we haven't measured up. We can see all of the sin in our lives, all the ways that we have rebelled against God. And in that moment, it's easy to feel kind of like Eeyore and just wallow in our sin. It's overwhelming. But at the same time, when we reflect on our sin, we reflect on the graciousness of our God. And we remember that we are in Christ. And so every sin that we have committed has been paid for and it is forgiven. Jesus looks at all of our sins and he knows them all and he says to those of us who are in him, who have trusted in him, he says, don't worry. That sin and that sin and that sin and all of them, I've got them covered. The debt has been paid. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We reflect on Colossians 1 that says, he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. We remember and reflect on that. Third, when we take the Lord's Supper, we proclaim. If we look at verse 26, Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're not just eating bread and drinking a cup of juice. No, we are proclaiming the good news of the gospel. This meal, this little wafer and this little bit of juice is missional. We proclaim that we cannot save ourselves and we take this meal to proclaim the goodness of God. We proclaim when we take this meal, Revelation 7.10, that says that salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb, the one who is sacrificed for us. 
And it's important, Paul says that this proclamation, it's not forever. Because we proclaim that one day the Lord will return to make all things new. This is a meal where, yes, we remember and we reflect, we look back. But the Lord's Supper is also a meal that looks forward. It looks forward to the day when we will be face to face with Jesus when he comes to make all things new. I want us to think about what that means for us today, but also for every day that we walk between now and when he returns in the Christian life. All of us, if we're honest, probably come in here this morning carrying pain and anxiety and hurt and uncertainty from life. I don't know what that is for you. It might be some kind of economic uncertainty or it might be pain from friends or from family or from loved ones. It might be the uncertainty or the anxiety that comes with a medical diagnosis. But this passage, it reminds us, and every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that the sorrow of the world will one day be wiped away. The brokenness, the suffering, our sin, it's all gone. So every time we gather to take this meal, we proclaim that truth, that whatever we're walking through, it's temporary, but the joy in the Lord is forever. Lastly, when we take the Lord's Supper, we unite. Look at verse 33, Paul writes, therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Right, this is the antithesis of what the Corinthians are doing in this meal. They were dividing and Paul's saying, come together. This meal is meant to bring us together. When we remember what God has done for us, when we reflect on our sin and God's grace, and when we proclaim together the hope of the gospel, we remember that in Christ we are united, one family, one body, together on mission. In his letter to the Colossians, Paul wrote, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. When we come together to take this meal, we remember that we're united in Christ. He is the one thing that we have in common. He is the one thing that we rally around the one thing that we gather together to point each other to. We remember that at the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level, and we unite in our common identity around Christ. As Paul reminds the Corinthians of what the Lord's Supper is, and what we are to remember the Lord's Supper is, he closes this passage with a warning, which is the final point of today's message. It's that we are warned to come to the table in a worthy manner. As he reminds us of what the Lord's Supper is, Paul warns us that whoever takes this meal in an unworthy way is guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord, leading to judgment. Look at verse 29. Paul's just tell, Paul tells us how to take this in an unworthy way. He says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The way to come to the table in an unworthy manner is to disregard the cost that Christ paid to rescue you from your sin. It's to disregard those that you are gathering with and should be united with in the gospel. We're to recognize that Jesus selflessly sacrificed his body for others and that this sacrifice was designed for us to make Christians a selfless corporate body. We don't come as the Corinthians did with our own desires and our own agendas. And Paul lays pretty clearly out what the penalty of this sin has been for some in the Corinthian church. He says, this is why many of you are sick and ill, and many have fallen asleep. 
If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Paul tells them that they are sick and ill, that even some have died because of the callous approach that they've taken to this meal. And at first read, if you're like me, you're like, man, that's, that's really extreme. Like, God would discipline his church because of the way that they're approaching the Lord's Supper up to the point of death. And that is what Paul is saying, but there's something else here. There's something that I don't want us to miss. In verse 32, Paul tells them that the Lord is disciplining us so that we are not condemned with the world. The Lord cares for us. He holds us. And as his people, sometimes he disciplines us. But the reason that he disciplines us is to save us. Listening to another Bible teacher this week talk about this passage, he said, the Lord loves us enough to take us out of the world rather than to give us over to it. That should actually comfort us. The Lord isn't disciplining us to punish us and to to send us out and to cast us out forever. He disciplines us because he cares for us and he wants us to be holy and he keeps us. So now that we are all sufficiently terrified to take the Lord's Supper, I wanna wrap up with some application, with some ways to approach the table. And there are three things that Paul wants us to see in how to to do the opposite, how to approach the table in a worthy manner. The first is this, it's in verse 28. We We are to examine ourselves. Paul's urging us, don't just go through this religious routine, but take time to reflect and examine ourselves. When we talked about what the Lord's Supper's for, we said it's for those who are following Jesus. And when we stop to examine ourselves, we should lay out this question bare before the Lord. Am I actually following Christ? Does my life, my thoughts, and my heart look more and more like Jesus? Or am I claiming to be a follower of Christ and I'm actually following the world? I'm not really good at this. I'm really good at examining others. I can spot other people's sins and flaws without a problem. But Paul doesn't tell us to do that. He says, examine ourselves. And as we've said earlier, the Lord already knows. But if you're in Christ, he's forgiven those sins. But it's important as we approach the table that we take time to confess the sin and to examine it. And when we do, we receive the grace and forgiveness that that Christ extends to those of us who trust in him. So when you come to the table, examine yourself. And remember that apart from Christ, none of us are worthy to take this meal. But in his mercy, he saved us, and so we confess our sins and we receive his grace. And we come humbly to him, knowing that he will sustain us. Second, we're to recognize the body. This is a meal that is not meant to be approached callously. We don't want to eat or drink judgment on ourselves. So we, want, we remember to not come to this meal in a way that's careless or irreverent. We come to the supper with the intention of commemorating the Lord's death as the sacrifice for our sins. We recognize the cost of our salvation and we proclaim his death until he comes again. And lastly, in verse 33, we see that we are to welcome one another. Paul started this passage rebuking the Corinthians because of their divisions during this meal. We see that it's meant to be something that we do together, recognizing that All those who profess Christ in the church as we eat the bread and drink the cup are uniting around the gospel. 
that when we come into this gathering on Sunday mornings from different races and socioeconomic statuses and different vocations and different levels of education and different fill in the blank, that we come together with one purpose and it's to unite around the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We come together to remember, to reflect, and to proclaim that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So as we hear in a moment all the crinkles of the peels as we take the Lord's Supper, we remember that we are not alone. That this meal has a horizontal relationship as well as a vertical one. And we look to those around us and we say, in Christ, we are united and we are one. We are selflessly devoted to each other and to the mission of the church and to the Lord. I can think of really no better way for us to end our time together than actually taking this meal. So if you're here and you're a believer and you didn't get a packet of the juice and the bread, I'd encourage you to to do that now. There's stations around the room. And as we do, I want us to think about what we've just heard, to take a moment to examine ourselves, to remember our sin and our good God, I want us to recognize the body, to approach this moment in a reverent way. And let us welcome all who follow Jesus at the table of the Lord. And as I said earlier, if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted in Christ more than taking the bread and the cup, I would urge you to trust in him. Pray in this moment to God, confess your sin before him and ask for your forgiveness. He's more than willing to give it. If you do that, I encourage you to stop by our care room after the service this morning. We've got folks who would love to meet you, pray with you, and talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to take a few moments to pray silently, to to think through those things. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take this meal together. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your table, as we are challenged and convicted and hopefully encouraged from your word, Lord, I pray that we would see the the cost of our sin. That as we look at this wafer and this juice, Father, we would realize that we rebelled against you and you are a holy and righteous God so there is a penalty but father as we look at this bread and at this juice we can see that in your grace and in your mercy that this penalty has been paid Lord we should have paid the cost but you sent Jesus to die die for all who trust in Christ. So Father, I pray that we don't only see the cost, but Father, we see the love of your plan to save us. We see the love of Christ who went to the cross on our behalf. And Father, I pray that we would see that you have reconciled us to yourself. 
Father, as we carry in the sin and the shame and the burdens of our lives and of this world, that, Lord, we would lay them at the cross and that we would know that we can stand before you not on our own righteousness, but on Christ's. I pray that as we take this meal, that, Father, we would be reminded that in Christ you have satisfied our greatest hunger and our greatest need. So, Lord, we confess and we recognize what this meal meant and what this meal is for. And I pray that we would do it in a way that is worthy and that unites your church together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.